everyone. Welcome to our first podcast in the series, Humanizing the Pandemic, Exploring Personal Experiences with COVID-19 in China, South Africa, Sweden, and the U.S. These podcasts have been created as part of a project that will be showcased at the University of Waterloo's 2021 Global Engagement Summit in early April, organized by the Faculty of Arts. If you hadn't had a chance to listen to our short series introduction podcast, please feel free to give that a listen if you're interested in learning more about the Global Engagement Summit and details on how our project on our project, including how it came to be. Today, we'll be focusing on the COVID-19 pandemic experiences of two medical professionals, one from South Africa and one from Sweden. We wanted to compare these two countries because their responses during the pandemic were significantly different and they both have unique strengths and weaknesses that have contributed to the overall experiences of those living in these countries. Let's just take a quick moment to introduce our podcast participants, starting with Asa. Hey everyone, my name is Asa Patel and I'm a fourth year health studies undergrad student at the University of Waterloo. And I'll be focusing on COVID from the perspective of Sweden and I'll be sharing the perspective of a nurse who I will be referring to as John. Hi everyone, my name is Bridget Trushan and I am a knowledge integration undergrad student at the University of Waterloo. I will be focusing on COVID from the perspective of South Africa, and I'll be sharing the perspective of a doctor on the front lines who I will refer to as Jane. And of course, my name is Lauren McLennan, and I will be the moderator and also tying in the Canadian perspective. I'm also a student at the University of Waterloo in public health in my fourth year. Now, just before we get into the thick of it, I'd like to remind our, our participants that the purpose of this podcast is to share global knowledge on and perspectives and experiences of the COVID-19 pandemic. To prepare for this podcast, we have consulted reputable online sources, including journal articles, government web pages and reports, and media sources such as news articles. We will be including direct links to any sources we discuss during the podcast in case any listeners wish, wish to engage in further learning. And please note that neither myself nor my colleagues are experts in COVID-19 or any related topics discussed during the podcast. We're just students who are practicing self-learning by exploring our curiosities and questions about the global pandemic. Further, the international perspectives shared during these podcasts represent individual experiences and not a collective population. And this podcast is not a comprehensive representation of the COVID-19 pandemic globally, but rather they are just a contributing piece to the larger discussion of COVID-19 and the unique experiences held globally. Well, we definitely aren't lacking conversation today. Reading the personal stories of frontline workers never fails to evoke emotions and bring me back to the reality of how devastating this global pandemic has been and continues to be. On the flip side, however, it's also been so interesting to learn about the pandemic responses of other countries. How has this project experience been for you guys so far? Bridget? I've honestly found it super eye-opening, and it made me realize how sheltered I was prior to doing this project. You know, South Africa has a lot of different social issues from Canada that influenced what sort of public health measures they are able to implement, and it's I just became aware of a lot of things that I wouldn't have even considered previously. 
Yeah, that's awesome. I think I've had a similar experience. I think it was really eye-opening. Um, I've been home for the past year, and I feel like I've been really sheltered with everything going on as well. Um, so it was nice to kind of look into what's going on in different countries and, you know, just learn a little bit more about how COVID's affected other populations. Yes, I think that is definitely an underlying reason of why we chose to take a global perspective of the pandemic. Like both uh, yourself, Bridget, and yourself, Ashla, what you were saying about how it's been eye-opening and how we've been so sheltered in Canada, a lot of the media that we've been seeing has really been focused on either our own country or our own province or even more uh, the local regions uh, that we reside in um, and the region of, of where we attend school. So this has really been a great opportunity for us to explore outside the borders of our own home and to really look into how COVID-19 has been impacting other countries. So that's what I want to get into next. Let's talk a little bit about the context behind both South Africa and Sweden and their experiences with COVID-19 to, to set the stage for what we're going to be discussing in the rest of this podcast. Bridget, do you want to go first? Yeah, for sure. So South Africa has a population of approximately 58 million people. They've identified approximately 1.5 million COVID-19 cases, and they've reported as of March 15th, 51,391 deaths. The first case was identified on March 5th, and this is something to note because most countries, including Canada and Sweden, which we'll discuss, um, reported their first case in late January. So this is significantly later than those two countries, and the first identified case was a traveler returning from Italy. Um, as of March 15th, they declared a state of disaster, and this is defined as a progressive or sudden, widespread or localized, natural or human-caused occurrence which causes or threatens to cause death, injury or disease, damage to property, infrastructure or the environment, or disruption of the life of a community. And I thought that this was interesting because they did not declare a state of emergency like Canada did. Um, in order to declare a state of emergency, they would have had to meet the requirement if the declaration is needed to restore peace and order. So they thought that they might have trouble meeting that requirement in order to declare a state of emergency. But we didn't run in into that same issue in Canada. And then as of March 27th, they entered their first lockdown. Um, mostly the rules are quite similar to Canada, but something that was particularly interesting is that the sale of alcohol was prohibited. Jumping forward, in January of 2021, South Africa saw their case numbers soar, and this was due to the variant that was discovered in South Africa in late 2020. Um, since then, their case numbers have dropped, though, and they've returned back to alert level one regulations, which outlines the following. Masks mandatory. Alcohol sales permitted outside of curfew. Indoor and outdoor gatherings are permitted but limited to 50% capacity up to a maximum of 100 indoors and 250 outdoors. Apart from permitted workers, you may not leave your house between 12 to 4. So I'm, I'm hearing a lot of similarities, um, general similarities between South Africa's restrictions um, that we've seen in Canada, um, specifically Ontario, as far as, of course, uh, mandating wearing masks and um, having these different levels of restrictions uh, that are in place that have different like rules um, in place for the different levels. Something that is different though is 
uh, South Africa's curfew, which I'm sure you guys have heard have been used in other countries as well. And so the use of the curfew basically restricts movement between certain hours of the day. Uh, and then, of course, restricting alcohol sales, which I know we'll get into a little bit later. Um, but that's that's something that we definitely did not see uh, in Canada. And what about Sweden, Ashla? Do you want to get into the context of that country? Yeah, for sure. Um, so Sweden's population is 10 million, and overall they've had approximately 700,000 cases and 13,000 deaths. Um, in comparison to South Africa, Sweden's first case was actually in January on the 31st, which was shortly after WHO had defined COVID as a threat. And by February 1st, they actually posed COVID as a disease dangerous to public and the society. However, back then, the risk of transmission was really low. And by March, um, mid-March, Sweden was encouraging sanitary practices and advice to slow down transmission, like avoiding traveling and staying home if you're sick. Um, Sweden has generally done a really good job at keeping the cases controlled, but it's interesting because unlike South Africa, Sweden's response was less invasive. For example, at the beginning of the pandemic, they never really had a general lockdown um, and masks were not mandatory for a while. However, they did implement when they needed to wear masks, like certain hours and age groups that really focused on healthcare workers and at-risk groups. In addition, there were no enforced quarantines for infected households or regions, which again is different from the way um, both South Africa and Canada has approached the situation. And currently, as of March 2021, authorities have tightened restrictions as part of the response to increase the because of an increased number of COVID cases rising. And this recent increase in restrictions kind of parallels with Canada, um, of course, like right after Christmas or around the Christmas season, we saw an increase or a tightening of restrictions um, that continued on through January and even into February. Uh, and then they kind of, recently they've loosened up in, in a couple regions. I'm, I'm talking about specifically Ontario since that's where we, we are all living. Um, and then most recently we've seen restrictions start to tighten a little bit because we are seeing cases rise again. So similar to Sweden, how they're seeing a rise in cases, again, there's that response by going back and and uh, restoring the restrictions that were originally in place to, to help, you know, keep cases at bay or even reduce them. It's so interesting to mm-hmm. listen to the different responses that countries have had, because each country is so unique, yet we do see lots of similarities and responses. Um, yet it's so difficult to really pinpoint exactly which response has either uh, helped or hindered a country's ability to battle COVID-19 um, because each country is so unique, both in, in history and, um, you know, all their unique uh, characteristics. So uh, I think we'll have some really great conversation going forward. Let's hear from both John and Jane's personal stories and their experiences with COVID-19 thus far. Uh, Bridget, did you want to start with Jane's experience? Yeah, for sure. So we asked them the question, how do you think your country and our region has handled slowing the spread of COVID-19? And Jane answered, I think there has been a large number of positives and negatives. One of the most positive implemented measures was the banning of alcohol and tobacco in the country. 
South Africa has an incredibly high number of trauma cases, gunshots, stabbings, motor vehicle accidents, with alcohol being the largest contributing factor to violence and high-risk behavior. So with the banning of alcohol, the hospitals were not overloaded with trauma cases, and this made it possible to control the influx of patients with COVID-19. Travel measures were handled appropriately, public education was appropriate, and testing centers were made available to the public. And I know that South Africa has quite a bit of experience uh, handling epidemics um, within their within their country. So I believe one of them is um, the HIV epidemic. Is that correct, Bridget? Yes, they are currently facing an HIV epidemic and a tuberculosis epidemic. So there are currently 7.9 million people living with HIV in South Africa, as well as 250,000 people living with tuberculosis. So mm-hmm. they have a lot more experience with prevention, treatment, and intervention than Canada does on this topic. Yeah, that's a significant portion of the population. And, and in, in a lot of those cases, that would mean a, a heightened portion of the population that are at increased vulnerability to contracting COVID-19 and then being at an increased risk of um, death from COVID-19 as well, um, which speaks a lot to how they need to respond to COVID-19 so they don't, you know, overhaul their healthcare system, which I think is probably one of the reasons why they restricted the sale of alcohol and tobacco, right, to keep um, all of, to try and reduce those incidents um, that involve al- alcohol or tobacco use um, that then come into their emergency department and overhaul their their healthcare system when really they need to be focusing on on helping persons with COVID nineteen. For sure, and I think it's worth you know discussing that eighty percent of the population relies on the public health system, and this is something that Jane talked about as well when we asked them whether the pandemic has impacted their work life and of course they're a doctor so it has but they mentioned how the healthcare system was already overburdened with patients prior to the COVID-19 pandemic and now with the addition of COVID-19 Jane mentioned how this has just further exposed the public sector's inability to cope with these high number of patients requiring public health care they mentioned that they are continuously encountering problems with the number of available beds for patients The waiting hours for patients increased, as well as the number of unwell patients increased exponentially, and hospital staff became severely overworked. And I think it's really important to consider this because it just really emphasizes the importance of South Africa to implement really strict um, public health measures to prevent risking this entire infrastructure failing. If you think about how the population is dispersed in South Africa. So there's a lot of rural population as well. And um, just speaking from a Canadian or Ontario Ontario perspective, um, sometimes in, in a rural context, it can be difficult to get any services, but particularly health services, uh, get people in rural areas access to those services. So you really do need to be ahead of the game, um, which it sounds like South Africa was really trying to do. Which is interesting because, you know, they, they obviously know their country so well. And if, if they have all this experience from handling epidemics such as HIV and tuberculosis, then they would be drawing on those resources and they would be aware of, okay, 
this is what we've done in the past. These are the resources that we have. This is what, you know, we've, we've learned and this is how we are planning to approach um, this new pandemic that we're facing now, along with our other, our other um, uh, population uh, difficulties such as HIV and tuberculosis. Yeah, for sure. And I find it so interesting to compare to Canada because when the first lockdown was eased in South Africa at the end of April, they are able to deploy a team of 28,000 healthcare workers to the highest risk communities where they conducted house-to-house case findings. And through this, they are able to test 11% of the population. And when comparing this to Canada, I think that this was definitely a weak point that we realized pretty early on. You know, like our testing rates were so low at the beginning of the pandemic. But since South Africa had already built this infrastructure to previously use for HIV prevention and intervention, they had no problem deploying this sort of technique. It is really cool to hear that because I think that like in Canada's past, and I'm talking about like back in like the 80s and 90s, these this idea of like home visits, whether it just be for like health checkups um, or like education, that was something that Canada used to do. And we're doing less of that now. Um, less, It's less like community outreach, I want to say like directly in the, to the home. Um, like we don't necessarily have nurses going specifically to homes to talk about health um, or to check up on people to see how they're doing. It's, it's a lot more, um, I think like a lot of it's online or done in like group sessions and stuff like that. So it's interesting to see that's what South Africa is doing as far as reaching out to these communities and going into these communities and doing that outreach. Um, that's something that Canada used to do, but not so much anymore. So I think that speaks to South Africa's knowledge um, about what works best for them to handle the pandemic, um, and especially with the, with their experience with past epidemics. Um, it's, it's really cool that they were able to deploy those resources and say, okay, are you, you, know, you guys are going out to these specific high-risk communities. First of all, they identified those communities and then um, allocated resources to them. And I think that shows a lot about um, their experience with how to respond to uh, health crises, which is really cool. Yeah, for sure. All right. Should we get into hearing about Sweden? Asta, do you want to share a little bit about John's experience uh, in Sweden? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I'm just going to quote what John had said. So he had mentioned, they have handled it well in many parts. I wish they implemented stricter disciplinary rules regarding mouth protection, more restrictions in grocery stores, restaurants, bars, and tourist areas, such as as, a, as usual, Sweden has implemented much later than other countries, but I suppose there are other motives, but mostly just stricter rules and sooner. I think it's really interesting hearing this from the perspective of a nurse because I could totally understand the burden it's had on the healthcare system and why implementing stricter rules could have really benefited frontline workers and you know slowed down the case of um, the cases of COVID. Um, so there were a lot of difficulties with understaffing and preparedness with primary care and hospitals. Yeah, and I think that's definitely a trend that we've seen globally, and especially here in on Canada. In Canada, um, we've seen a huge burden on our healthcare system uh, nationally, 
And especially like in our own province of Ontario, we've seen countless media headlines about frontline worker burnout. Um, I'm speaking specifically to like health professionals, frontline workers, because of course there's countless other frontline workers that are um, facing COVID-19 head on. Uh, But it's, it's definitely, there's a trade-off that I think that, um, governments have made as far as trying to protect our healthcare systems and our frontline workers that are operating those health, those healthcare systems. Um, but unfortunately, still we have seen a lot of burden, um, physically, emotionally, mentally, psychologically, in all these different ways, on our frontline workers, including our nurses and our doctors. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really impacted them in ways that we could have never imagined and people are really really struggling with their mental health yeah for sure and going back to burnout um john also had mentioned in the unit he's working at in the hospital um they started off with 14 nurses at the beginning of the pandemic and it's actually narrowed down to five nurses um due to mental health reasons and just not being um you know able to um continue working in this state i guess Um, So it's really interesting to see how it's affected a lot of people in terms of their mental health and all other aspects of health as well. Yeah, for sure. Jane also mentioned how hard the social isolation is and how working in this environment when the healthcare system is under such high stress, how physically, emotionally, and psychologically draining that is. And then also on top of that, not being able to go see your friends and family for comfort or for, you know... uh, a stress reliever that just adds to the issue for sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, frontline workers have, have seen the, I would say, I want to say like worst parts, like worst impacts of COVID-19. Um, but then after they're finished facing that in their, in their day jobs or night jobs, um, mm-hmm. then they go home and they might be further isolated from friends and family. So that social aspect of their lives, just like a lot of people, um, whether you're a frontline worker or not, you've, we've really been restricted in our ability to socially interact with people. Um, and yes, we have, you know, we have a lot of people have the internet and access to the internet and access to, to resources mm-hmm. such as FaceTime or social media, like stuff like that to interact with other people. Um, but I think that there's even burnout as far as virtual social interaction um, because it does take a considerable (laughs) amount of just effort and brain power to interact with people virtually. And um, as far as if the rest of your life is virtual as well, like maybe if if your work is virtual and you're spending all day staring at a uh, a computer screen, then kind of the last thing that you want to do is further connect with people <laughs> through a computer screen. Um, so the the way that we have mm-hmm. been interacting with people has really transformed and made it more difficult and more um, emotionally stressful, I think. Yeah, for sure. And I also feel like connecting with people online all the time somewhat feels like there's a loss of connection as well. Um, after such a long period of time doing the same thing, kind of gets boring and you need that physical or like human to human contact instead of just like virtually seeing people all the time so I could definitely understand that as well 
Yeah, I find it interesting to think about Sweden too because from what I understand, it seems like they really tried to prioritize the mental health of their citizens by um, not having those stringent lockdowns and not shutting down businesses, etc. But it's interesting to see the trade-off that that has on the other side of the healthcare system because ultimately without lockdowns, there's going to be more cases, just the nature of the virus. So I think it's really interesting to see that trade-off in real life. Yeah, um, in Sweden, they actually really encouraged people to go outside and see people. I mean, if, if it was indoors, just outdoors and the gathering, um, gathering with people just so they, they had that human to human contact. And it's so interesting to hear both of these different approaches, um, because if you think about our experience here in Ontario and Canada, we have restrictions um, in place, but I, I have seen in the media and on social media, um, a lot of people complaining about the lack of enforcement, which uh, it sounds like in South Africa, enforcement was prioritized to really, you know, say to people, if you break the rules, these are the consequences and those consequences are real. Whereas maybe here in Ontario, those consequences have not been upheld uh, quite as strictly. So... (laughs) I, th- I think it I think it has a lot to do with um, resources as well um, and, and other issues that are going on and also just the the country's ability to enforce um, certain certain laws or rules that they have put in place. Yeah, and I think it's important to think about why South Africa implemented the measures that they did and what I found in the literature and in news articles is that, they weren't able to heavily rely on social distancing and hand-washing techniques because they have an extremely unequal country that leads to approximately 13% of the population living in what they described as an informal setting, so essentially homeless. And to provide some context into South Africa's inequality, a Gini coefficient is a measure of distribution of income across a population and it is used to gauge economic inequality. And it ranges from zero to one, with zero being perfectly equal and one being perfectly unequal. So Sweden's Gini coefficient is 0.275, Canada's is 0.303, and South Africa's is 0.63. So it's more than double that of Sweden and just about exactly double that of Canada. So this heavily influenced their ability to rely on other measures, and this is what ultimately forced them to implement the complete restriction of movement of people in general. Yes, and that speaks a lot to how a country responds to the pandemic and possibly the differences in their response to the pandemic, because it's really it's really dependent on the unique char- characteristics of that country. Um, and that kind of ties into like, who's to say what response is best? Because every country is so diverse um, from the others around it. And as, as we said multiple times before with South Africa, they've had a lot of experiences where they've learned um, how to handle epidemics. And so I'm sure they've carried that into um, responding to this pandemic as well. And of course, um, their, the inequality that they face, like that really is taxing on their ability to respond to the pandemic and protect their, 
their citizens from COVID-19. Um, and that also ties into, we have, we have inequalities here in Canada, of course, like Bridget, how you mentioned, it's, it's not as severe as, or it's not as extreme as South Africa. Um, but it's, we still do have inequalities here. And there are places in Canada where people are not able to physically distance. They don't have access to water, running water, clean water, et cetera, to be able to wash their hands. Um, many, many more things that make them more vulnerable to COVID-19 and unable to comply with restrictions uh, or suggestions that the government has put out. And I think that really shows that there's not a one-size-fits-all response to a pandemic. Um, even within a province such as Ontario, it's it's very, very large. And even within a community, because a community community can be very diverse as well. Let's go back to discussing mental health for just a couple minutes, um, because obviously that's, that's a huge part of the pandemic um, and has affected everyone um, across the globe. Ashla, do you want to talk a little bit about the different policies that Sweden has put in place to support their citizens as far as like coping with mental health during the pandemic? Yeah, so one of the responses Sweden's government had was providing workers with sick leave. Um, so it was actually launched in March, um, mid-March, so March 19th. And the aim was to stop people from going to work when they're feeling sick. Um, so sick leave costs were provided to workers for the first two months after an employee became ill as a result of COVID-19. Um, I think this was really effective because it provided um workers a way to slow down the spread of COVID and as well it reduced um, any financial problems that they might have and you know it can really impact their mental health as well so it was a great response Sweden had um, to really help with mental health in the country. Was that policy implemented this March or March 2020? March 2020. Oh wow so they've had it in place for like a year now. Yeah. Oh my goodness. And that was like right at the beginning. I know. I think it's really good because, you know, um, I feel like financial burden can be a really stressful thing for most people. And a lot of the times people won't stay home because, you know, they need to still provide for their family or they have a lot of financial responsibilities. So it was a great way for people to definitely stay home. I think that is such a great idea. And you know, to talk about Jane again, they had COVID twice since the beginning of the pandemic. So could you imagine if you were sick for two weeks, both times, like that's a full month off of work. And if the government doesn't supplement you for that, how, how can people, how can people survive? You know, like people have financial responsibilities, no matter their health of themselves, whether they're sick or not. So that's a really great idea. And it would be interesting to see if providing paid sick leave would have any, would make any difference as far as like the financial assistance or support that um, citizens need from their government. So just thinking about like Canada and like the emergency response benefits that the government was giving to people who qualified because like they lost their job or, or I can't remember like specifically all the reasons, but that was a significant payout to Canadian citizens. And a lot of it was because, yeah, people like couldn't work any longer um, or maybe they lost their jobs. 
um, or they decided to leave their jobs because it was just it was too much, understandably way too much for them. So it'd be interesting to see if paid sick leave like made would make any difference in um, like other financial supports that the government is giving their citizens as far as um, like helping them to be financially stable during the pandemic. And again, from a Canadian um, or more specifically Ontario perspective, what's happening right now uh, is a lot of people are really advocating for paid sick leave from their employers and, you know, asking the government, you need to enforce this because it is so important and it is a really key contributing factor to the spread of COVID-19, especially in high risk professions such as frontline workers. Um, so paid sick leave is not just, it's not just a way to help citizens um, cope with mental health uh, and like keep their own physical and mental health well, but it's also a, a key like <laughs> battling fa- or way to battle COVID-19 by saying like, don't come to work if you're sick, but you, you know, that that's, everyone knows, like, you're not supposed to go to work if you're sick, but when you have financial responsibilities, just like Asha was talking about before, it's so difficult to make that decision to stay home when you're sick versus going to work if you don't have paid sick leave, because a lot of people, they don't have a choice. They need to, they have those financial responsibilities they're cut no slack for those they need to provide for their families or for themselves. So what are they supposed to do? They have to go to work. And if they go to work and they have COVID-19, uh, you know, whether they, they are aware of it or not, then that's a significant way that they can infect other people and, and how outbreaks can, can happen and then lead to further spread. So paid sick leave is definitely a huge policy that, is important to be put into place that I think all governments should consider to protect their populations, not only as far as uh, mental and physical well-being, but the well-being of of their citizens in general. Wow, it's crazy that it's already been almost 40 minutes doing this podcast. Time has just flown by. We've had some really great conversation today. And obviously, like I said at the beginning of this podcast, this conversation is just such a small piece of the larger conversation of COVID-19 and there's so much more to be discussed but obviously because of time (laughs) we got to cut it for today. It's been really interesting to hear both John and Jane's journeys with the pandemic thus far and it's been also really interesting to hear about the differences between South Africa, Sweden and Canada in their responses to COVID-19 but not just the differences also the similarities between all the three countries. Yeah, for sure. I mean, being a student in Ontario, Canada, going into this project, I didn't think I'd have that many similarities with a doctor working in South Africa. But this project has been so amazing because I've realized that we're facing a lot of the same issues, you know, like frustration with social isolation. And while, of course, we both have different challenges, you know, like I'm not a doctor on the front lines. I'm not going to say I have the same amount of challenges, but it's just interesting that there are so many similarities that I wouldn't have thought of previously. Yeah, and similar to what Bridget just mentioned, it feels like a lot of us are going through kind of the same stuff in different and unique ways. 
um, I feel like I've gained so much perspective on the pandemic and become a lot more aware of the impact it's had on individuals in terms of physical, mental, and social health. Definitely. Um, it That was like the point of this podcast is to try and incorporate that humanized approach to learning learning about the pandemic um outside of out, outside of the comfort of our own homes um and what we know in, in in our own country and like you said Bridget it's it's all about that we are all humans at the end of the day um and our experiences might be different but there's also similarities because um bottom line is is we're humans and we're facing the same pandemic um our experiences within the pandemic of course are varied and diverse for multiple different reasons um but it's important to recognize that everywhere every person around the world is still facing the pandemic and it's not just about the numbers of cases or the numbers of death deaths it's about people's real life and how they're facing it every single day um, which I think is really, really important to come back to, to be able to understand the reality of COVID-19 and the impacts that it has had, because it's a, obviously a massive historical event that will be in every history book, I'm sure. So that is all the time that we have for today. We're so happy that you tuned in. Thank you so much for joining us. This was the first podcast in our series. Humanizing the Pandemic, Exploring Personal Experiences with COVID-19 in China, South Africa, Sweden, and the U.S. And of course, we did during this podcast look at perspectives in South Africa and Sweden, um, specifically the perspectives of two frontline medical professionals. We do have one more podcast in the series where we take a look at China and the U.S. So if you enjoyed this podcast, feel free to check out that one as well. And additionally, if you're interested in learning more about the University of Waterloo's Global Engagement Summit, it's being held virtually on Wednesday, April 7th, 2021. So if you're on Twitter or Instagram, you can follow at UWWaterlooArts. So that's the at symbol UWaterlooArts for more information and also to register. So there's going to be a lot of content advertising the, the summit on both Instagram and Twitter, and of course, the University of Waterloo's website. So the event is open to anyone, anybody in the public that's curious about the COVID-19 pandemic. And attendance is not only a great learning opportunity, but it's also a way to learn about University of Waterloo's amazing and talented students who are challenging themselves, local, national, and global issues to create change. We'd love for you to join us and invite your friends as well, and registration is free. So once again, Thank you so much for joining us. We've had such a good experience recording this podcast and our other podcast as well. And we hope that we could bring some insight uh, or some knowledge to you that maybe you didn't have before. And of course, we'll have a lot of our resources that we uh, consulted in order to create this podcast uh, linked with this podcast as well. Thanks so much. Bye-bye for now. Bye.